This is Cover to Cover Open Book. My name is Eric Klein. We recently marked the one-year anniversary of the tsunami. Today on Open on Book Waves, Cover to Cover, we'll listen to a piece of an interview with Eric Krauss, author of Wave of Destruction, the stories of four families and history's deadliest tsunami. I'm your host today for Open Book, Eric Klein. Krauss was in Thailand last year working on a different book than Wave of Destruction when the tsunami struck. I went to, I've been going to Thailand for about 10 years now. Um, I compete in Muay Thai. It's their ancient art of basically kickboxing, similar to kickboxing. And I went this time about a month before the tsunami struck to write a book on uh, Muay Thai and also to compete. Um, I was down along the coastal regions about six days before the tsunami actually hit, I ended up going up to the jungles for a trek, and that's when, uh, on December 26th, the tsunami happened. It took me about 12 days to get back down there, uh, just because they were trying to get everyone out of the area. But when I finally got in, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do or where to go or how I could help people. Um, the tourist zones had a lot of relief workers there helping the tourists out, um, trying to, you know, gather them up, uh, the bodies, and, and, and get them out of the country back to their homeland. Um, but then I went to, to a Yanyao temple, uh, the temple where they were bringing all the, uh, the dead Thai. And so my first experience was with 5,000 dead bodies. And there was, you know, children looking for their parents and parents wandering around looking for their children. And it just, I've never experienced anything like that. And I knew that there was lots of people who weren't getting help at that moment. So um, that led me to Nam Kim. Nam Kem is a small village, it's a town in fact, on the west coast of Thailand, north of the popular tourist spots like Phuket, which had received a lot of attention, a lot more attention in the immediate aftermath of the disaster, both from the media, Thai and international media, and the rescue efforts. Uh, in fact, the Thai royal family was uh, vacationing on the coast when the tsunami hit, and the king's own grandson was missing, so for, for most of the... Uh, initial days of the aftermath of the tsunami, most of the attention was focused on, on those resort towns and not on Nam Kem or the people who lived there. So when the tsunami hit, they, they got completely devastated. They lost about two-thirds of their population. Uh, the, the record is that 5,000 people lost their lives there, but the number is actually a lot higher because there are so many uh, Thai laborers and Burmese laborers that were at the area that weren't accounted for. Um, so I went there, and, and they were getting no, absolutely no relief efforts in the first days. They were basically a forgotten village. And so I just was going around trying to deliver water and food to people who needed it, um, help people look for their, for their family members and whatnot. The book Wave of Destruction by Erich Krauss isn't just about the tsunami disaster. Uh, it's also the story of four families that lived in Nam Kem. Poor people who met and fell in love and worked hard to raise families. Their everyday stories are what comprises really most of the book and the first half of the book with the tsunami taking place in the middle and then the end of the book is the aftermath. One gentleman that I, I followed and, and 
had the pleasure of becoming good friends with is is Wimon, and he's had a pretty long history with natural disasters. Since he was a child, he's suffered through eight natural disasters, uh, floods, storms, uh, fires, burned his house down five times. And he's an extremely hard worker, and he, he vowed not to have a family until uh, he could build his own home, which obviously, losing his home so many times in disasters, it took quite a while. Uh, so finally, when he was uh, in his 40s, he met a woman that had two wonderful children, and finally got their life started. Uh, he was out on the water fishing in a long-tail boat on the day of the tsunami, and in the general proximity he was in, uh, there was 23 other boats, and his boat was only to survive the waves. And part of it was because he uh, attacked it sidelong rather than headlong. But uh, when he you know, finally got back in hours later to, to Nam Kim, he learned that his family was also hit by the wave, and uh, his wife ended up saving his elder daughter, uh, but his younger daughter didn't make it. So he also lost uh, seven other members of his family. Near the end of the book, Wimon becomes a national figure in Thailand um, for going on live radio to tell the people of Thailand about the losses in Nam Kem. This is one of my favorite portions of the book um, because up until that point, no one had really understood the level of destruction that had taken place in, in Wimon's town and he was able to communicate to his countrymen and women uh, their desperate need on the radio. He spoke to the Thailand's one of their most famous broadcasters, Mr. Sori Yuse, who was uh, doing a live broadcast out of Bangkok at the time, interviewing people on the coast of Thailand. Uh, Wave of Destruction is just as much about the village of Nam Kim as it is the four people that I profile. Um, I did a lot of research through the people that I talked to. People have lived there, um, you know, shortly after, since shortly after its inception. People who were there from its inception that are now in their 80s. And then um, just uh, talking to hundreds of people in the village and old village leaders, uh, things of that nature. So I kind of got to piece together the history of this small village. It has a very unique history. It was uh, uh, the tin mining, which is kind of a rough business to begin with. Uh, they basically cleared a patch of jungle, got uh, rights to mine the area from the government, cleared a patch of jungle, and started digging uh, for tin right on the shore. And so they attracted hundreds and then thousands of laborers to work in these tin mines. And mostly it was extremely desperate people who went there to do this because uh, they were starving elsewhere and they were willing to work for 12 baht a day, which is you know less than 25 cents a day. And so... Uh, Quickly, it became a territorial thing with the tin mining bosses. Obviously, they're making huge profits um, because they have such cheap labor. And so the bosses from different tin mines started fighting over the rights to various areas to, to mine for tin. So in came the cutthroats and the hitmen, and uh, basically the streets became a shooting gallery. And the next came the prostitutes and the gambling and the drugs. years is kind of this lawless uh, town. The police wouldn't even go anywhere near uh, Nam Kim. Uh, one of the people that uh, I became dear friends with who helped 
uh, translate much of the book. Um, she was fearful of going there in the beginning because when she was a young girl, she was to watch uh, cars that or trucks that came up from Nam Kim down this long, windy dirt road all the way to the shore. It would come up on the weekends carrying bodies of men who were killed in shootouts the night before. So, you know, this the Nam Kim isn't looked very highly upon in the eyes of the people there, but it, the the village has definitely changed from, from what it was when it when it first started. And when the tin dried up, the laborers, which were good people, just very destitute and poor, um, ended up going, you know, becoming laborers for the tourist industry or... Uh, became fishermen, or they started diving for pearls off the coast, or they opened up uh, small restaurants or bistros. And so they kind of changed this town, uh, forced it to change. It was either going to die off or change, um, and it became a very close-knit, family-oriented uh, uh, village. Um, there hasn't been a murder there in, in 10 years. Crime rates are extremely low. Um, so it definitely went from one thing and became something much better. And you know, when I first went there, it was uh, it was gone. You know, there was you couldn't even tell that a village had stood there at one point. It was just rubble piled on top of rubble. One of the main uh, people that I profile in Wave of Destruction is, is Wimon, and um, he did not feel that relief effort at least for Nam Kim, we're up to par. Um, most of the relief was given to the tourist areas uh, further south, and Nam Kim was left abandoned in the first weeks after the disaster. Uh, he felt the village leader was stealing uh, donations, including long, long-tail boats that, uh, that foreigners donated. And so he's been definitely fighting to get uh, donations directly to the people who need it. He's turned down my... You know, aid uh, and giving it to other people who need it more. We did end up getting him a long tailboat. We demanded that he keep it so he could get back out to sea um, and start, start supporting his family again. Wee Mon, he, he was instrumental in bringing uh, a spotlight on Nam Kim in the first week. He contacted Mr. Story, who's the largest reporter in in Thailand and basically got Mr. Soryus to come to Nam Kim to see that 5,000 people had died and to bring help. And in return, Mr. Soryus said, We moan. I can give you anything. You need a house. I'll get you a house. You need a boat. I'll get you a boat. This is for you personally. And we moan said, No. I need a psychologist, a psychiatrist. And we need lots of psychiatrists because... I'm thinking about suicide, and everyone else I know is thinking about committing suicide. And Weemon's neighbors thought he was crazy. He said, you should have got a house, something we can really use. And Weemon said, you know, right now, the most important thing is my mind. I just need my mind back. I can work for everything else. And so Mr. Soryus brought 70 uh, psychiatrists to Nam Kim to talk to the people. And, you know, they... Actually, ended up talking. One psychiatrist ended up talking to Dang. She was too far gone to reach. Dang is another character in Erich Krauss's Wave of Destruction. She's really amazing because she was already engaged in an intense struggle for her community before the tsunami struck, and it was after the tsunami destroyed Nam Him, uh, 
uh, where her smaller community up in the jungle is located that the struggle just intensified. Um, she lost her mind after losing so many family members. Um, they gave her pills that she had to take, but after a certain point she refused to take them. And it wasn't until she started fighting back against the company and the village leader that uh, she ended up getting her sanity back. You're tuned to Cover to Cover, Open Book. We're listening to an interview I've done with Erish Krauss, author of Wave of Destruction, on the one-year anniversary of the tsunami. Erish is telling us about Dang, one of the villagers he met and chronicles in Wave of Destruction. Her story is extremely interesting. Um, her father, about 30 years ago, lived near the Malay border, and he only had enough money either feed his family for a couple days or put everyone on a bus and take them to Nam Kim where he hoped to get a job working as a laborer in a tin mine. And so he ended up bringing his family to Nam Kim. He built just a little little hut in the jungle and ended up working, you know, for 12 cents a day as a laborer. And as he fully prospered over the next 15 years, he invited all his friends to say, hey, this is a place to come. So they built a community a little bit south of Main Village in Nam Kim, and that's where Dang was born. She, her father actually didn't have money to go to the hospital, so his wife gave birth to Dang right there in, in, in a community called Bong Lu. Well, for the past four years, there's been a, a company has been trying to steal their land to build a hotel because tourism is pressing further and further north as it expands up the coast. And so now it's pressing in on Nam Kim, so they've been trying to steal their land. They sent soldiers on, they shot at them, um, when Dang, basically no one else was standing up in her community, so she organized her community, was the leader standing up against this company, and they killed her pets and made death threats against her. But she refused to budge. She took them to court and whatnot. But after the tsunami hit, the company saw its, its chance to uh, attack, and they put uh, stationed bodyguards around the land, and they wouldn't let any of the, the 50 or 60 families that were still, um, you know, family members that were still alive, go back into the area, and she couldn't get back onto the land for, for over two months to find them, and she slowly lost her mind. And when she finally did find her daughter, and she was totally unrecognizable, uh, something snapped inside her, and she decided that she was going to fight this company, even though they were willing to kill her. The company that Dang had to fight was also in cahoots with Nam Kem's village leader. Um, he inherited the position from his father before him. The company and the village leader were just trying to make Dang and her community go away. Things were looking pretty bleak there for a while, but uh, she ended up doing an interview for the Bangkok Post, the largest paper in Thailand, and told her story, and instantly overnight, the country came to her rescue. Um, Lumber yards donated wood so they could start rebuilding their homes. Hundreds of students from around the country came on their break down to help build. Um, cement companies donated cement. And so slowly since I was there, you could see their community slowly rebuilding. But the problem is the, the leader still has the embargo. There are no, no donations can reach them, no water, no, no food. And so now as donations are starting to trickle down, their homes still aren't finished. There, there's worry that, uh, you know, the company will actually win in the long run. 
uh, if they wouldn't have got that one single article in the Bangkok Post, they all would have been either ousted from their land or Deng could have very well been dead. Because he got such coverage and so many reporters came to her after that, both from in Thailand and uh, on a worldwide scale, that the, I think the company definitely took a step back and said, hey, if we do anything now, I mean, because it was getting really serious. People that Deng was seeking help, um, one guy wound up dead, and he was murdered at the bus station. This is Bookwaves, cover to cover. Open book, actually. My name is Eric Klein, and we're listening to an interview with Erich Krauss, author of Wave of Destruction. He was in Thailand when the tsunami hit last year, and just recently this book came out. It's a story of four families, um, their life stories before the tsunami and how they fared, oh, about ten months or so after the tsunami hit. Back 30, 40, 50 years ago, the government gave um, uh, the Hock Sok Singh Mining Company permission to, granted rights to mine the area for tin. Um, now, obviously, when they were mining tin, people had to come out there and live there and as workers. Well, Dang's father just, you know, settled on a patch of jungle. He had no money to buy land. But he's been living there 30 years. And when it was over 20 years, they acquire in Thai law a deed to that land. So they, they have rights. They can prove that they lived there for 20 years to that tract of land. Well, what happened in recent years is the Hawk Sox Singh Mining Company realized that that land was extremely valuable. So they went into tandem with uh, a large company in town. Do you want me to give a name? Sure. It's called the Far East Company, and it's run by an extremely powerful politician who has control of pretty much anything he wants. So his first move was to send a special forces uh, unit onto Dang's land, and they basically went in there under false pretenses, said, hey, listen, we're trying to, we just purchased this land. We're going to try to map out your home so we know what's yours and what's ours. So everyone was completely willing to allow them to map out their homes, except one guy at the last guy in the community said, hey, this is funny. You have no papers. You have nothing to show me. You're doing something fishy. Well, they ended up building a wall that night around his house. And he was so irate the next day when they came back out to finish mapping out their property that he started videotaping them. Well, the leader, this special forces leader, didn't like that, pulled out his gun and shot at him. Well, he still filmed. And so he re- now the special forces leader realized that he has him on film, and he orders his men to kill him. So he takes off running, and they chase him in a firefight, and shoes ensues, and he gets away. And so obviously, right then, the people realized that something fishy was going on. So the deed that this this military leader promised them never showed up. And from there, they systematically started trying to acquire their land by whatever means possible. And did the videotape make it out? Yes, what ended up happening is uh, several months ago, um, his name was Ba, the guy that videotaped. He disappeared, and Dang assumed that he was dead um, because they uh, he ended up getting rescued by a guy that just happened to be in the area in a truck, 
and that's how he got away from the soldiers who were shooting at him. Um, so he disappeared off the off the planet. Well, uh, not too long ago, the videotape surfaced, and he had apparently contacted the right people in the government because the military uh, leader, which led this little charade down in in, in Banglud, was uh, brought to court and now is facing serious uh, charges. And he actually Deng testified at this trial and. And the the soldier threatened her life that if she testified, he would kill her. So, but she did anyway, and that's not the first death threat they've made to her. So, but that that still leaves the company, which is still in control, and they still, you know, doing whatever they have to to get that tract of land. I mean, it's a really pressing piece of land to build a hotel. They're willing to get it by whatever means necessary. A hotel, beachfront hotel in the Phuket area is just priceless. So Dang struggled to save her community from being taken away from her and her uh, neighbors and turned into a beachfront resort. It continues. Uh, Getting a bunch of publicity in the Thai press certainly helped, but as the tsunami fades into the distance and the into the past dave's yeah, dang's struggle goes on you're listening to an interview i've done with erish kraus author of wave of destruction my name is eric klein wave of destruction is not just about the disaster, like I said, but it's also really a series of love stories about the, the characters in the book. Um, we get to meet them when they're young people and they fall in love and get married and have a family and raise their family, all while being incredibly poor people who moved to a Nam Chem, which didn't exist uh, before the 1950s. It was basically cleared out of the jungle 50 years ago in order to mine for tin. The tin dried up, I believe, in the early 90s for the most part, and the people of Nam Chem shifted, as people are wont to do, very, very resourceful, and they fished, and they uh, also dove for pearls, and they also worked in the tourist industry, which is always growing in Thailand. So we've learned about Wimon and Dang. Another couple that is featured in the book is Wichian and his wife, author Eric Krauss. Another gentleman that I follow is Wishian. He lost his home in the tsunami, and in the days after, he had to spend a few weeks in the hospital with his wife. And when he came back to his house, it was still partially there. He discovered that looters had stolen everything, even his underwear. And before they left, they had defecated on the floor. So he was pretty, pretty broken spiritually. And... No one was coming to help him, and he felt lost. He felt abandoned by the world. So when a Christian organization came to him and offered help in exchange for him converting to Christianity, uh, he did it. He's been a lifelong Buddhist. And, you know, although they did get the aid they needed, it, it did some damage to his family because his wife was also a lifelong Buddhist, and she did not want to convert. And so it led to some tension between them uh, and there's you know, several other families in the area which did the same thing, that they felt that in order to get the aid from this this uh, organization, they had to convert. And so, you know, some negative things like that have been going on. There are obviously plenty of re- uh, religious organizations that came to the area 
that that did good, that did nothing but good, that came there with uh, no ulterior motive. You know, as far as relief efforts, uh, in the beginning, it was just to get people what they needed in that moment, get them food, get them uh, clothing. But it, that was even hard because it was, it was everything was so chaotic. So what ended up happening was uh, dozens of families, really poor, destitute families, came from the north to stay in these camps. In the north, I mean up in the highlands. And those people would stand in line and collect donations, even though none of them had been affected by the tsunami. And so one lady that uh, I profile in the book, she was growing weary. She was never getting any aid because every time she got to the front of the line, everything would be gone. So she was kind of suspicious about uh, a couple of families, and she went to their tent and took down the zipper, and it was filled with appliances and food. And there was so much stuff packed into these tents that the people couldn't even sleep there. There was corruption going along that line, so it was hard to tell who was who in the first days. It was just kind of a scramble to get what you could. Um, obviously, they became a little more organized in the long run um, and set up the temporary housing camps, and I think they've done real well with those. But the problem now is getting people, the last of people, to leave the temporary housing camps. A lot of them do have homes in Nam Kim that have been built for them, but they're afraid to go back to the village for fear of losing the donations they're still getting. Um, and others simply still don't have homes because of the corruption going on. The homes have been given away to other people. And so these are two issues we need to solve. Somehow uh, getting those donations to still reach the people who return to the village, but only those in desperate need, and then finally getting houses for those who still don't have anywhere to go. Listening to Arish Cross speaking about his book, Wave of Destruction, it's a nonfiction, bit of narrative nonfiction about survivors of the tsunami in Thailand in the village of Nam Kem. Um, it's a very good book, but it's not all totally uplifting because the people of Nam Kem are still struggling to survive uh, even a year later. But at one point I asked Arish about how he was doing as the author of the book um, and whether or not he was getting any other attention for his work. And he said that he'd almost gotten the opportunity to travel back to Thailand to check up on the villagers that he'd met. But another book written by a woman who lost her boyfriend in the tsunami but was an American woman, and it was really her story, kind of edged him out uh, publicity-wise. Yeah, if I end up going back, there was, there was talk about me, uh, the, Today, or the Good Morning America was thinking of going over there and bringing me to do a piece. Oh, my gosh. Well, that's... Well, I mean, I think that fell through because they ended up taking the supermodel. <laughs> he was uh, <laughs> talking about her personal, personal, uh, you know, battle with the tsunami. I mean, she lost her boyfriend. That's I understand, but you know, so I lost a lot of radio or TV interviews to her in 2020 and some other things. But uh, uh, earlier this year, like like when the tsunami was bigger news, you were you were going to be a bigger part of the TV coverage. But no, they were going to do it for the anniversary here at one year. I was supposed to. My publicist was trying to arrange. Uh, uh, you know, some some television, you know, uh, t I think it was uh, 2020 was one of them, Good Morning America, and a couple other, Dateline, I think. They were planning, considering having me on, and then they ended up going with the supermodel. Erich Krauss, 
also uh, was working on a wildfire book, a book about the California wildfires. He graduated with a degree in physical geography with an emphasis on geomorphology. Uh, it's a study of land, forms, how it's created. And I also had an emphasis on natural disasters. Those were the two things that I studied. So in your expert opinion, um, where's, where, where's the next horrible natural disaster? Oh, man, you can never tell. I mean, you got to think, it's, it's, it's everywhere that disasters have happened in the past that people haven't lived at. You know, we've had these massive earthquakes, we've had tsunamis of greater magnitude over the course of history. It's just that where people choose to live now. We're being forced to live in high ha hazard areas, like with the SoCal wildfires. Uh, you know, the same place where homes burned, we've had six fires in that exact area that swept through there over the past 50 years. But we still build it right in the fire's path. History is uh, easily forgotten. Uh, the, in, the memory of the general public is only about uh, 10 to 15 years. Once it gets beyond that, the disasters are forgotten and people uh, repeat the same mistakes they've made in the past. It's a, a cycle that's uh, almost inevitable, in my opinion. And, and that was kind of a factor with the tsunami, right? Because you're saying traditionally the Thai people didn't live. Exactly. I talked to a hundred-year-old uh, Buddhist monk, and his opinion was that uh, tourism was almost to blame for the disaster, and, and greed was his opinion, is that greed has drawn people to the coast uh, to make money off nature. And he believes that nature